0: In 1920, Eugene V. Debs became the first presidential candidate to run a campaign from prison. Now, some are wondering, could Donald Trump follow in his footsteps? This is Swamp Notes, the weekly podcast from the FT News Briefing, where we talk about all of the things happening in the 2024 U.S. presidential election. I'm Mark Filipino, and this week we're asking, how are Trump's legal troubles shaping the campaign? Here with me to discuss is Stefania Palma. She's the FT's U.S. legal and enforcement correspondent. Hey, Stefania. Hi, Mark. And we've also got Peter Spiegel back with us, the FT's U.S. managing editor. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me back, Mark. Okay, honesty, guys. Did you guys know who Eugene V. Debs was before we started taping? I mean,
1: I majored in American history in college, so I know Eugene B. Debs, the socialist candidate for president, multiple times in the 20s and 30s. So I have to say, I did know that. Ten points to Peter. Stefania?
2: No, by virtue of my beats, I have heard uh, of Debs multiple times, given everything that's happening around Trump.
0: Well, good. You guys have both passed and we can continue on with the conversation. (laughs)
2: Thank God.
0: And the reason we're talking about this now is in part because there was some news last week about Trump's civil cases. He was asked to pay over $350 million in a fraud trial. Uh, He was also banned from operating a business in New York State. And it got us thinking, you know, what? What are the implications of the criminal and the civil cases on Trump as we go into this campaign? Stefania, what are the big criminal cases that we're focusing on right now?
2: So Trump is currently facing 91 criminal charges across four separate cases. We have two federal cases, one accusing him of meddling with the 2020 uh, elections and one charging him with mishandling sensitive documents. We also have a third case uh, out of the state of Georgia that is also accusing him of interfering with the 2020 polls as it pertains to the state uh, specifically. And then lastly, we have a criminal case out of New York state courts that is essentially uh, accusing Trump of making hush money payments to porn actress Stormy Daniels in the lead up to the 2016 election. And when it comes to timeline, the first one that's coming up will be the New York hush money case that's uh, starting March 25th. When it comes to the other three, it's still very, very fluid. There was an expectation that they would be able to begin before the vote in November, but now it's very unclear whether that is going to be the case.
0: Peter, we've got four criminal cases, the ones that you just mentioned. As I mentioned, there are several other civil trials Trump is going to be spending a lot of time in court between now and November. How is that going to affect his ability to campaign?
1: Yeah, it's going to be an issue. I mean, it's been one that's, that thus far has cut both ways, right? I mean, he has used these appearances in courts as, as opportunities to go in front of the camera, to rally the base, uh, to accuse the Biden administration of launching political persecutions of him. So he, it has, in some ways, served him in his communication strategy. But as the trials begin to start, He's going to have to spend a huge amount of time in court, which is going to keep him off the campaign trail. The other thing I just mentioned on this is he's also going to have to spend a lot of resources financially. A lot of money. A lot of money because we've already money, seen yeah. in his last uh, – his campaign funding announcement, $50 million of his, of his campaign funds were spent on legal defense. Now, that's not a small percentage for a campaign that's already struggling a bit to raise money from, from people who was donating to him in 2016 and 2020. So it is not inconsequential, and I think if you start looking at the calendar – you know, you have increasingly narrow window of time for Trump to actually campaign, particularly if he's going to be stuck into these court cases that are all around the
0: country. Stefania, I know this kind of gets into some weedy constitutional territory, but if he were found guilty in any of these criminal cases, would it impact his eligibility to serve a second term and even be elected?
2: The truth of the matter is, is that when you look at the U.S. Constitution and the prerequisites in it for someone to hold presidential office, It doesn't really say anything about being convicted, even serving time in jail. So it's not clear that even if Trump is found guilty, even if he's sitting literally in a prison cell, uh, that that would stop him from being president. One provision that many of his critics are pointing to is the uh, 14th Amendment that basically bars anyone who has engaged in insurrection from holding office. Now, he has not been charged with insurrection. However, there are two states, Colorado and Maine, that have thrown him off their state Republican presidential primary ballots on the basis that he allegedly did engage in insurrection when it comes to the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, 2021. Now, that matter is before the Supreme Court, and we still don't know where uh, the justices are going to land on that.
1: To summarize, the, the problem is when none of the founding fathers or those who wrote the 14th Amendment, which was written right after the Civil War to prevent basically Confederate leaders getting reelected in Washington, no one in the 18th century or the 19th century contemplated a case like Donald Trump. And that's the problem. You want to sort of want to reach through history and tap James Madison on the shoulder and say, hey, hey, by the way, if someone gets convicted of a felony, maybe right. you should write a line in there that says it. But they didn't do that because they had the impeachment process, right? The impeachment right. process is if you're convicted of a high-flying crime uh, or misdemeanor, you get thrown out of office. And it was at the time, because I've done a lot of research on this, at the time it was seen to be so self-evident that someone had done something so horrible that despite partisan differences, which they didn't really have in the 18th
0: century. It would be clear um, that they would be off the ballot. It would be clear.
1: Nobody would vote for them, right? But no one contemplated what we have today. And that's the problem.
0: Well, now that I've gotten my honorary law degree, I'd like to talk a little bit about the politics of this, because ultimately voters still get a chance to weigh in on whether or not These criminal cases, these civil cases should impact Donald Trump's ability to serve as president. Peter, are we seeing this impact voters' decisions? When we saw the indictments come
1: down, um, I think the assumption was, ah, he's been indicted. This will turn people off to him. And actually, the exact opposite happened. He was able to fundraise off these things. It solidified the base. It solidified the narrative amongst his base that he's being politically persecuted, that this is a political trial. And so you saw the base solidify around him. The one thing I will say is there is a, a portion of the Republican Party that just is tired of the chaos. I mean, Trump, who in many ways ran as an incumbent, he only got 51 percent of the vote in Iowa. It's a very conservative state, 54 percent in New Hampshire. And a lot of the people that our reporters talked to on the ground in New Hampshire and Iowa said part of the reason they don't support him is this issue. It is not so much the legal cases as the chaos. On the Democratic side, it's much more complicated, right? Joe Biden has clearly made the decision that he cannot be seen to be politicizing this in any way. It's his Justice Department. It's his Attorney General. Now, there's a special counsel who's bringing the prosecutions, who is independent of the Justice Department, but it's still the U.S. federal government, which Joe Biden heads, bringing charges against his rival in November.
2: And also politically, I think it would be a bit of a strategic faux pas, given it would completely play into the narrative that Trump has created in light of these indictments, which is that it is political witch hunt in any case and that they are politically motivated. Yeah. I mean, it's
1: that old political saw: don't, don't get away with your opponent when he's screwing up.
2: Stefania, will he be convicted?
0: I mean, we've seen Trump evade consequences for scandals and legal challenges in the past. But as far as the criminal cases go, the, 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 the big ones that we're talking about here, could this be different?
2: I mean, I think the stakes are that much higher, especially when you think of, first of all, the variety of misconduct that he's been accused of. That sort of puts him in quite a vulnerable position. Secondly, we have both the DOJ as well as uh, states coming at him from different directions using actually completely different statutes. It's very difficult to predict if he will be convicted. We often talk about Trump cases specifically in relation to the 2024 elections for obvious reasons. But I think it's important to remember that these cases are testing the U.S. Constitution, courts, Congress in a way that we have never quite seen before. If we really zoom out and if we do accept the premise that the U.S. remains the most powerful democracy in the world, for better or for worse, then that means that a country with this level of weight globally is now suddenly potentially facing pretty fundamental shifts in how the government is run, how it's elected, the checks and balances around its president. So I think it's fair to say that we cannot overstate the historical significance of these legal proceedings that, frankly, go way beyond the 2024 polls, if not U.S. borders.
1: The other thing I'll just say about that to, to emphasize what Stefania is saying is, yes, the U.S. is the largest economy in the world. Yes, the U.S. has the most powerful military in the world. But the what what Joe Nye used to call the, the the soft power of the United States, that's the way the United States would influence global affairs, right? It was the indispensable nation. If the Americans showed up, they had this example of a of a, a country that worked, a democracy that worked, and that's frankly how international affairs would operate. Other countries that were spying to become modern countries would look at the United States as a model and they would model their political systems and their economic systems after the United States. This is really undermining that moral authority on a global stage in a way that nothing else has. And I think that. The U.S.'s ability to influence global affairs because of that soft power is going to be severely undermined because of what's going on in the next six months. All
0: right, guys, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to do an exit poll. This one's going to be out of this world. I'm Michaela Tendera, host of Behind the Money, a podcast from The Financial Times. Every week, we take you inside the biggest business and investing stories of the moment. From Apple's reliance on China.
1: The more you peel back the onion,
0: the more you realize that it's China all the way down. To turmoil in the banking world. If it goes bankrupt, we'll have chaos in financial markets. It would have been absolute carnage. Follow Behind the Money wherever you listen to podcasts. We are back with Exit Poll, where we talk about something that didn't happen on the campaign trail and apply some Very rigorous political analysis to it. Today, we're talking about the Odysseus lunar rover. At the time of this recording, it's mere moments from becoming the first American spacecraft to land on the moon in 50 years. Sounds great, right? America's back on the moon. We all missed it. But Odysseus was built by a private Houston based company called Intuitive Machines. So, assuming everything goes according to plan, guys, is this lunar landing good for Biden or a win for private sector boosters in the Republican Party?
2: I think it'll be a very interesting prompt for debate around sort of innovation when it comes to private sector versus public sector. Obviously, the company behind this is a private one, but there is much to say around public investment in the earlier phases of the innovation race that's have been fundamental in order for, say, companies like this one. I don't think it's a a clear uh, black and white conversation, much more nuanced. Peter, what do you got? Moon or no moon?
1: I would just say, look, I think I I will undermine the premise of your question, Mark, because uh, just because it's private sector doesn't mean it's good for the Republicans. I will remind everyone that it was Barack Obama, a Democratic president of the United States, who actually scaled back the NASA mission to the moon so that private sector companies like SpaceX and whatnot can move into this space. And actually, at the time, Republicans were very critical of him in this one. So I say it's a victory for Barack Obama and therefore a victory for Joe Biden. It is good for Biden that we're back on the moon.
0: Thanks, Obama. (laughs) I want to thank our guests, Peter Spiegel. He's the U.S. Managing Editor for EFT. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me back. And Stefania Palma. She's our U.S. legal and enforcement correspondent. Thanks, Stefania. Thanks for having me. This was Swamp Notes, the U.S. politics show from the FT News Briefing. It's produced and mixed by Ethan Plotkin. It's also produced by Lauren Fedor and Sonia Hudson. Special thanks to Pierre Nicholson. I'm your host, Mark Filipino. Our executive producer is Topher Forges, and Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. Check back next week for more U.S. political analysis from the Financial Times.